and uh, they'll be having just a memorial service this coming Friday. But pray for for Brian and for his father particularly, as as his father struggles with the the, the loss of his wife. And then just got word this morning that Louis and Dan Santana just lost their father this morning. He had been sick and um, passed away earlier today. So please remember them, uh, not just uh, today, but throughout the week as they struggle with uh, the grief of losing someone uh, dear to them. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you're the God of all comfort. Father, we just lift up Brian McLaughlin and his family. We pray, Father, that you would be with them, you would encourage them. Father, Brian has asked for prayer, especially for his father, Lord, that he might be strengthened during this time. We pray for his siblings, Father, that they might put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Lord, that this loss would cause them to see their need. Father, we thank also of, of Louie and Dan, and pray for them, Father, that you would encourage them in the midst of their hurt and grief. Father, that they might just lean on you and look to you. And Father, we think also of Kirill and just pray for him, Father, as uh, well, he is just uh, moving in a new direction uh, this week. Lord, that you would encourage him, that you might just give him uh, strength as, as he excitedly takes on uh, uh, a new um, a new thing in his life. And um, Father, for Nada, we pray for strength for her. Lord, we know that she's been struggling physically, Lord, that she's uh, in pain. And we just ask God that you'd be with her and that you would encourage her. And Father, for this day, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the book of Ephesians. Father, a book that's so filled with so much theology and doctrine, so much encouragement. And Father, we pray, I pray, Father, that I would step aside. And Father, that your spirit might speak through me. Well, you might use me, Lord. Lord, to communicate your deep truths and your word. And Father, for us, Lord, as a congregation, Lord, that our hearts might <clears throat> be open, Lord, to, to hear and understand your word, Lord, um, mentally and also Spiritually, Lord, that we might be able to, to wrap our, our hands around it in a sense. We just thank you and praise you, God, for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, both our boys, Zachary and Jared, played soccer in the AYSO League growing up. And uh, in high school, both played some soccer and Jared played football. And I'm, I'm the kind of father that I can't go sit in the bleachers and just yell, go. I, I'm the father that is running down the sideline and saying, good job, Zach. Great block. Go, get him, get him, get him. That's me, you know. And I'm, I'm always yelling, Jared, what a hit. Get him, man, get him. That's me. That's me. And as my boys are playing football, I want them to know that, man, I'm right there with them. I want to encourage them. And when I see them struggling on the field, 
I want to give them words of encouragement. I want them to know that their dad cares. In the midst of a struggle on the field, I know as a father that my encouragement may have been annoying to those people around me because I know that I was probably loud, but I just had to do it. I wanted to encourage Zach and Jared and their and their teammates. When we're struggling in life, when we feel overwhelmed at times, we may feel like giving up. Sometimes we may question whether our Heavenly Father is still on our side. Does he still want me to win? Should I just give up? Or I've heard people say, I just can't keep on. I'm being hit in every direction. In our passage today, our Heavenly Father is shouting out encouragement to us in the midst of our struggles. He's saying, I chose you. I, I love you. I predestined you. You're mine. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're mine, and no matter what, I will not give up on you. These words in our passage today are strong. Sometimes they even cause offense. But when we understand their context, the context of encouraging and blessing God's children, we understand that there are reason to praise our Heavenly Father. There are reason to praise our Heavenly Father. Ephesians, such a wonderful book. In verses 3 through 6, it's been read, but let's read it one more time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Boy, this, this passage opens up with praise. Praise for our Heavenly Father. And that's really the, the focus of this passage. Paul says that we should praise God because he has blessed us as our Father. As a matter of fact, the passage opens up with Blessed be the God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this little section here, verse 6, ends with the fact that he predestined us to be adopted to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul tells us that God shows us before the foundation of the world and that we have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And then in verses 3 through... Uh, 14, I believe it is. It just lays out 12 blessings that we have. 12 different blessings in Christ. And, and they, they're divided up based on the Trinity. 
God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we see in verses 3 through 6 that the Father chose believers in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. We see, secondly, that the Son redeemed believers in the historical past. We see that in verses 7 through 12. And third, we see that the Spirit of God seals believers as they put their faith and trust in Christ. And that we can have assurance that we are His. Today, I want to focus on the work of, the, of our Father in our salvation. As we study this passage, there's, there's no way to avoid dealing with a topic that, that has just been a debate over years, a tension there, um, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in salvation. God's responsibility, or rather God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The two, two passages we'll look at today is, verse 4 is, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, and in love He predestined us. So some Christians, these doctrines are a cause of protest. But for Paul, he sees them as praise. He says they're blessings for which God should be praised. And I struggle with how to present this, wanting to be faithful. But I think it's very clear as we study God's Word throughout, front to back, it's clear that salvation begins with the work of God. It's God who begins salvation in our lives. John 15, 16, Christ says, You have not chosen me, but I've chose, I chose you. In Romans 3, it's real clear that the sinner doesn't seek after God. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one, no one seeks for God. Luke ten nineteen says that God is the one who seeks after us. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We will read in verse 4. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And that word chose, to choose out, to select, to pick. It simply says that God, in his mercy and grace and love, he picked us out. He chose us. I can remember as a little kid being picked to play on football and baseball and volleyball. When I, when I was chosen for baseball, I was down toward the end there. I didn't wear glasses and I didn't realize I didn't do a very good job of seeing that ball coming. Football? I was, I was okay there. It feels good when you're picked up front. It doesn't feel very good when you're the last one picked. <laughs> But God doesn't pick that way. God doesn't choose that way. He doesn't choose us based on our intelligence. He doesn't choose us based on our athletic ability. And for sure, he doesn't choose us based on our goodness. The mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility 
would never be solved in this life. Both are taught in the Bible. Both are true. And both are necessary. And we need to find a way to live with them. There are many passages that talk about God's sovereignty in our salvation. John 6, 44, Christ says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And this word draw carries with it uh, an irresistible force. In Greek literature back then that time, the same word draw was used of a desperately hungry man being drawn to food. We only come to God when he draws us. Acts 16, 14. We all remember Lydia, the seller of purple. Says that the Lord opened her heart to respond. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. You may ask the question then. Does the sinner respond to God's grace against his will? In other words, do we come to Christ with our hills in the ground? Sometimes people may feel like that. But no, no. We come to Christ because of God's grace. God's grace makes us willing and wanting to come to him. John Stott says, Everybody, everybody finds the doctrine of election difficult. And it gives an example of someone coming to him indignantly and saying, didn't I choose God? To which he said, we must answer, yes. Indeed you did, and freely. But only because in eternity past, God first chose you. On the other hand, there are many, many passages that talk about the fact that that we're responsible You and I are responsible to make decisions to follow the Lord. We all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. We know that. There's so many passages that talk about that. 2 Peter 2, 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think Isaiah 55, 9 may help us, give us some insight into this situation. It says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Because we're finite, We can't understand how God in his sovereignty initiates salvation. Ken Boa illustrates this in a a book called God I Don't Understand. And he, he contrasts the intelligence of a dog with a man's intelligence. He says, a dog has a limited number of bits of information that he's capable of handling. And a man also has a limited number of bits of information but he's capable of storing and working with a lot more than a dog. 
Even so, though, there is that overlap between a dog and, and a man. For example, a dog can relate to a master's eating food. The dog can be trained to lead the blind, to herd sheep, to bring back that duck that you shoot. He has that much ability to communicate in his master's world. It can't relate, though, to the master reading a book. And yet, there is enough common ground for people to love a dog. I bet most of us, sometimes in our lives, have had a dog that we love. We had several living on a farm, but I remember the last dog that mom and dad had. It was a little brown and black and white, eventually gray dog named Sam. Now, everybody, my, my siblings would say, in this rural area, cars come by, what do dogs do? They chase and they bark. When I would go down once a year, Sambo didn't bark. I believe that I could look in his eyes. I think he knew who I was. I think, I think there's almost a smile on his face. Seriously, but dogs do recognize us. I don't understand why, but I know that there are people who love cats. And, and I, I, I know that this is true. And I believe that they, they have that communication with that animal. Um, but boy, it's hard, harder for me to, to love a cat. Um, but you know what? As we think about this debate between the best pet, the cat and dog, one thing for sure, I think, even though I think cats are harder to love, I don't think there's anyone here who loves a worm or an insect. We just we, we don't. Now, Zachary used to keep little earthworms in his pocket when he was three or four, when he was digging out in the yard, but he didn't love them. You see, insects and worms, they don't communicate very well with us. The dogs and maybe cats, maybe they can communicate some. You know, just as a dog can understand some things about what humans do, we humans just are not able to grasp what God is doing as he works. That gap between us and God is even wider than a gap between man and a dog. Yes, God can communicate, and he does communicate very clearly with us all the time. But I think because God is infinite and we're finite, we can't understand all that God is doing. Well, let's get back to this passage. He chose us in him before the creation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. Two points on God's choosing. He chose us in eternity past. He chose you and me, if we are believers today, he chose us before the foundation of the world. We had done nothing. He chose us. According to his purpose, the purpose of his will, we did nothing to merit it. 
As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 1, 27 says that God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. And as God chose the nation of Israel, he warns them. He says, I didn't choose you because of the size, because you were few. So in Deuteronomy 7, chapter 9, he says, as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, he says, you're not going into the promised land because of your righteousness, but because of their wickedness. Second Timothy 1, 9 and 10 says, it's not because of our works. It's not because of our works, but his own grace and his purpose. We have nothing today. If we are in Christ Jesus, we have nothing to be proud of or to boast about or to take credit for. There's no room. The emphasis here in this passage is so much on God, on God's grace, on his love, on his will, on his purpose, on his choice. It's all about God. Because of our union in Jesus Christ, we can trust our Heavenly Father in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of dangers, in the midst of our own deceitful hearts. We will face trials. We'll face hardships. Financial struggles, loss of jobs, broken relationships, death of loved ones. But, but, we can have that assurance that as children of God, that we're safe in Christ because he chose us. He chose us. We have seen then that God has chosen us in eternity past according to his purpose. In verse 4, we see the first result of election. It's our sanctification. He chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him. First, two aspects as we think about sanctification. We're to be holy and blameless It's the process of becoming holy. We know when we think about sanctification, there are two aspects. One is our position in Christ. When we come to Christ, we're in Christ and we have all, and we'll see in the weeks to come, all that we have in Christ. We must remember always that our righteousness is in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin. He made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Nine times in the book of Ephesians, God speaks of believers as saints. He begins the book and he says, Paul, the apostle, Jesus Christ, to the saints, in Ephesus and down the line. We're saints. Speaking of our position in Christ, Brian Chappelle at Covenant Seminary says, we have something removed from us and something supplied us in our salvation in Christ. By virtue of our union with Christ, we have our blame removed. 
we have our blame removed. What shame, what shames us and what justly condemns us is not held against us any longer. As Christ is without spot, so we are blemishless by virtue of his work. As a new believer, many, many years ago, I struggled as I come out of drugs and alcohol with assurance of my salvation, and, and my pastor would help me. And I remember him taking me to a passage. He said, Ralph, he said, Satan is hitting you. He says, he's condemning you. And he says, don't you remember, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. In Christ, we're blameless. Not only does our union with Christ remove the guilt and shame, but it supplies our, our righteousness. Well, we have that position. Also, we have a practice. And God is concerned about how we walk. God calls us to live a holy life. He says that he, he saved us called us to be holy. There are verses that, again, have that, that uneasy tension sometimes between God working in us and our commitment to walk with him. Leviticus 27 says, keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. And there he's instructing us, obey my laws and my decrees. He says, but I'm the one who makes you holy. First Kings 8, 58 says, may he turn our hearts to him. May he turn our hearts to him to walk in all his ways. May God, our Father, turn our hearts toward him so that we would walk in his ways. In Colossians 1, 22 and 23, says that now that he has reconciled us by the death of Jesus Christ in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And then he throws in if, if, if indeed you continue in your faith, stable, and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. We're reconciled if we continue. You see that, that uneasy tension that we all struggle with. Yes, we know that God is the one who works in us, but in our practice, God calls us to be obedient. As a matter of fact, we'll see that a sign of our election, of our being chosen, is our walk with God. I walk with God. Harold Ockingay, who was a founding president of Fuller Seminary and also Gordon Conwell Seminary, says, if God has elected us, he has not elected us to remain sinners, but to become holy. It's an error to speak of the elect living in sin. God never chose us to continue in sin. Ken Hughes, who was for years pastor at College Church in Wheaton, says, if your life is characterized by, by a pattern of conscious sin, you're very likely, you may well not be a Christian. 
If some of your most cherished thoughts or hatreds, if you're determined not to forgive, you may not be a believer. If you are a committed materialist who finds your greatest joys in self-indulgence, in buying clothes, uh, buying lavish outfits, having all your walking, waking thoughts devoted to house and to cars and to clothing and to comforts, then you may not be a Christian. If you're a sensualist who's addicted to pornography, if your mind is a 24-hour house of prostitution and you think it's okay, you may well not be a Christian, regardless of how many times you walk down. You see, God's choosing salvation changes us. Do we continue sinning? Yes, we do. But God chose us in order that we might be holy and blameless before him. Are you growing? Am I growing in our faith? Do our lives reflect the fact that God chose us? A second result of our being chosen by God is in verse, verse 5. He predestines us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In love. In love he predestined us. When God elects us, he predestines us. And this just simply means that, that he determines in advance what our destiny will be. In this passage here, this, this verse, really see that relational aspect. In love, in love, he predestines us. Last week, Pastor Eric mentioned the apostle Paul. And the fact that he was called Saul before. If you remember, Saul hated Christians. He made it his business to arrest them, to kill them, to persecute them. But on the road to Damascus, he had a confrontation with Christ. And after that confrontation, when he saw who Christ was, it was a 180 degree, it was a total turnaround. Saul became Paul. Because when we encounter God, he changes us. When we encounter God, he changes us. We cannot remain the same. That doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sin. Because we will till the day we die. But we don't continue on living the way we have. Paul wanted us to know that our salvation is not by works. It's all about grace. And predestination for the believer is meant to encourage us in the tough times. Because we do go through tough times. And we struggle. And we wonder sometimes, as I said earlier, is God on my side? Does he want me to win? We're predestined for adoption through Jesus Christ. And William Barclay says, as we think about adoption, 
He says, <clears throat> the Roman concept of adoption was when, a, when it was complete, it was complete indeed. The person who had been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family, completely lost all rights in his old family. In the eyes of the law, he was a new person. So new that, that even all his debts, all his obligations from his previous family were abolished as if they never existed. Does that kind of sound familiar to us in Christ? All debts, all obligations, it's as if we are a new person in Christ. John 1, 11 through 13 says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave rights to become, right to become children of God. Again, you see that man's responsibility. To all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, and here you see God in his sovereignty, who were born not of the blood, of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. A young mother wrote in Reader's Digest, saying, I stayed with my parents for several days after the birth of our firstborn child. One afternoon, I remarked to my mother that it was surprising how our baby had dark hair, since both my husband and I were fair. And mom said, well, your daddy has black hair. But mama, I replied, but mama, that doesn't matter because I'm adopted. Says her mother with an embarrassed smile, said the most wonderful words I've ever heard. I always forget. I always forget. We're adopted. We're adopted. John MacArthur, talking of human parents, saying that we can adopt, and we have some here who have, and we can love them with every strength of our being, just as much as our natural ones. The adopted ones have equality and family life and resources and inheritance, everything. But no human parent can impart his own distinct nature to an adopted child. No human can impart his nature to an adopted child. And yet, and yet, that is what God miraculously does to every person whom he chooses, who has trusted in Jesus Christ. He makes them sons, just like his divine son. Christians not only have all the son's riches and blessings, but all the son's nature. Years ago, my wife Chris's sister Vicky and her husband Derek adopted a 
hearing impaired girl from Columbia. The girl was, Gimme was probably six, seven, eight years old. She was thrown around from foster home to foster home. She lived in the streets. No one wanted her. Vicki and Derek went down. They signed the papers there in Columbia. And years, years afterwards, Yimmy saw her mom and dad signing papers to buy a new home. Yimmy can't hear, remember, but she saw these papers being signed. And all of a sudden, Yimmy became frightened and began to act abnormal. And Vicky began to talk to her through a sign language. And she realized Yimmy had in her mind mom and dad signing those papers and they took her. She was afraid that they were giving her up. They were able to talk to her and everything was fine. Our adoption in Christ is complete and we are eternally God's sons and daughters. Someone has said that God didn't choose us to be foster parents. We don't get kicked around because, or kicked out rather, because of bad behavior. I still remember the struggles I went through as a new believer coming out of the drugs and alcohol and just, just I couldn't believe God's grace that he would save me and that, and that I was secure, that I could have assurance that I was his, that I was adopted into his family. We hear stories about foster parents and, and, and please know this, there are many wonderful foster parents. But sometimes kids are moved from foster home to foster home. Sometimes it's because of the kid's behavior. We don't have to worry. We don't have to worry day by day whether we're good enough to be God's son or daughter because our righteousness is in Jesus Christ. Brian Chappelle sa says that God signed our adoption papers, so to speak, with Christ's blood. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. We've seen that as believers, we're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we're sanctified and adopted into God's family, the result of being chosen. In verse 6, we see the ultimate purpose, the ultimate goal of being chosen is to bring glory to God, to bring glory to God. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to praise of his glorious grace. In love, he predestined us to be adopted. 
to the praise of this glorious grace. And that, that kind of follows in, in the passage in, in verse uh, 12. It says, he made us his heritage to live for the praise of his glory. And he says that one day, in verse 14, one day he'll redeem us. Why? For the praise of his glory. For the praise of his glory. Isaiah 43, 7, talking about Israel, says, Everyone who called by my name, whom I created for my glory, God's ultimate purpose in selecting and, and, and directing our lives is that it would lead to his glory. And as God's character is revealed, he is seen as a loving God, as a, as a gracious God. You know, today we, in a culture where we live, we, people who don't know Christ, they have this wrong view of who God is. And maybe it's because we don't present a very good picture of who he is. But they have this idea that he's, that he's not loving. But God wants you and I as believers in Jesus Christ to live in such a way that we bring glory to him. And when his character is revealed through us, praise is inevitable. Praise is inevitable. John Stott says the glory of God is the revelation of God. And the glory of his grace is his self-disclosure as a gracious God. For us to live for the praise or the glory of his grace is to worship him. To worship him by our words, by our deeds, is the gracious God that he is. And as we live for him, as we worship him through our words and through our deeds, causes others to see him for who he is and to praise him also. That's what our lives should be all about. That's why he chose us, to bring glory to him, to make other people aware of who he is. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. God wants us to live in such a way that others see Christ through us, through our lives. It's a question for you and for me. Is God seen as a loving God? Is God seen as a gracious God in your life, in my life? Is he seen as, as a, a God who loves us so much that he wants to save us? Too often we were all about our own glory, being recognized. Recently I was talking with someone uh, about someone who refused to do ministry because they didn't want others to get the credit. How do we, how do we become God's people? He chose us according to his purpose and his plan. And why did he make us his people? Not because of any merit in us. It's for the praise of his glorious grace. Some questions to ask. Do I seek my own glory? 
to you. When I go through hardships, when, when everything seems to be falling in, when I'm disappointed, when I'm hurt, does God come through in my life, in your life? Do people see Christ in us through our hardships? Is our desire that God would use us for his service? Remember, as we go through life with its battles and its struggles, we need to remember that our Heavenly Father is in it with us. Go back to that opening illustration. When I was there at those soccer games and football games, my heart was there. But I was on the sideline. I ran up and down the sideline, and I yelled. And I wanted Zach and Jared and all the teammates to know, I'm with you. I just thought, oftentimes, some of the teammates would come up to me after the games and say, Mr. Edmonds, appreciate you being here. You're a big supporter. We, we heard you yelling. Keep it up. We need it. You and I, as we go through this battle on, on this earth, as we struggle sometimes to move forward, remember our Heavenly Father is not on the sideline. He lives within us through His Spirit. And He's for us. He's for us. He wants you to win. He's saying, I love you. I chose you. I predestined you. I adopted you and gave you my nature. Ralph, I want you, as you go through this hardship, to allow me to be glorified and down the line. God so much wants people to see himself in us. He loves us. He chose us not because of any merit, only because of his purpose, his purpose, purpose of his will. that we might live holy and blameless lives to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, well, these have been 
some deep thoughts to deal with, Father. I still go back, Father, to the illustration of the, the dog and man and how the dog can comprehend and understand some things, but it's just finite compared to man. And yet, Father, that gulf being so much bigger, so much wider between us and you, I follow, we want to bring glory to you. Father, work in our lives in such a way that you shine through us. We just thank you and praise you, Father, that out of your deep love that you chose us, you called us to live for you. In Christ's name, amen.